Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the good news, the gospel, according to St. Mark. Uh, we're picking up uh, the last week of Jesus' life at chapter 11, and we're going to look at Jesus' final steps as he walks through the holy city of Jerusalem. Let's share in God's good word together. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes upon it, and he sat on it. Many people spread out their clothes on the road, while others spread branches cut from the fields. Those in front of him and those following were shouting, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Friends, tonight we finish up our sermon series, The Final Steps to Jerusalem. The Final Steps in or to Jerusalem. Um, the, we've been following um, a 12-day trip that Chantel and I took um, to the Holy Lands, and so uh, we've been wanting to share bits and pieces of that trip so that you too could have a sense of being in the places that Jesus walked, where he talked, where he healed people, where he made things right in the world. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it, and I want to invite you to read it with me. God is here right now. Will you just read it with me? God is here right now and on our side, actively seeking to help us in the ways we most need help. This is the good news of Jesus. He comes, and where someone needs to see, he heals them, and they see. Where they need to hear, he heals them, and they hear. Where they can't walk before, now they can walk. Where the relationships are broken, he forgives and makes those right. God is here right now, this night, on our side, actively seeking to help us in the ways we most need help. And Jesus lives out the very last days of his life in such a way that we could see that. That he lives not for himself, but in obedience to God the Father and for our good. For all the world's good, not just for one people in one locale at one time any longer, but for all people on the planet for all time. This was prophesied, of course, by the prophet Zechariah. And um, Zechariah shouted this, he said, Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise the roof, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming, a good king who makes all things right, a humble king riding a donkey, a mere colt of a donkey. And so in the scripture that we read just a few moments ago in Mark 11, we find that Jesus, for the first time in his ministry that we can tell, says to his disciples, I want you to go and get me a donkey. I want you to go get a little colt, and I'm going to ride that from the Mount of Olives um, into Jerusalem. Now, you'll note that if you look through the Gospels, you don't see Jesus riding a donkey at any other time. He goes all the way from Galilee, uh, which is 60 to 90 miles north, um, all the way down to Jerusalem, and he's doing that by foot. He's not riding a donkey there, but when it comes time for him to enter in the last week of his life, this is when he chooses to ride a donkey, and this prophecy is why. He's saying to everybody else, I am the, wait, the long-awaited one. I am the anointed Messiah. I am Christ the King. And, and I'm going to show this to you by writing in in the way that the prophet Zechariah said that I would. And so, so we have that. Um, the Messiah arrives riding a donkey. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. That's your first blank there. So the Messiah or the Christ, those are the same words, really. One is Hebrew Messiah. The other Christ uh, is in the Greek. It means the same one. The, the king, the one that, that Israel has been waiting for. So on the very first day, uh, full day that we were in Israel, we started at um, the Mount of Olives. 
And now the Mount of Olives overlooks Jerusalem. And so this is a, uh, a picturesque uh, and powerful sort of location. I want to show you some of these photos. So Mount of Olives, you can see, is way up high on a hill and overlooks. In the middle, uh, sort of get your bearings, uh, is the gold dome there. That's the Temple Mount. Um, it's the Dome of the Rock where um, underneath that, uh, the Muslims believe that uh, this is where Isaac uh, was going to be sacrificed by Abraham. It's a holy site for Jews and Christians and Muslims all alike. And if you expand out from that, that whole top section is known as the Temple Mount. You'll see the eastern wall there below it, and then it drops down, drops down, drops down, drops down in the Kidron Valley, and then it comes all the way up uh, to the Mount of Olives, and that's where you start as you look. Uh, on the Mount of Olives, um, it was tradition still to this day that you could not be buried inside the walls of Jerusalem. And so, um, as we talked about um, over the last number of weeks, it's it's really just one big rock over there. There's hardly any topsoil whatsoever. And so you, there's no place to bury people. So all the graves are above ground. And so there's just mass graves all the way up and down the Mount of Olives as far as you can see. Um, it's kind of creepy, actually. Um, they have little stones there. But, um, I mean, just family after family after family after family um, all outside. To this day, you can be buried there if you're Jewish and you want to be buried on the Mount of Olives. Um, so there are a lot of famous uh, Jewish people uh, buried there. This is the eastern gate, which the Muslims sealed uh, when they took the city. Um, interesting enough, I'm told that the, the burial sites in front uh, of that gate um, are actually uh, Islamic sites because it was their belief that the Messiah could never be made unclean, couldn't walk through people who weren't Jewish. And so they closed, they sealed the eastern gate because the Messiah is supposed to come through the eastern gate. And they thought, well, if we, if we put our graves, our non-Jewish graves, out in front of the eastern gate, then the Messiah can't come. Now, friends, that's not to understand who Jesus is, is it, at all? Because we have a prince of peace and of love and redemption and of grace to make all things new. A few graves aren't going to change that, friends, not at all. So the Mount of Olives overlooks Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, um, then Jesus would be coming down those mountains. And as he overlooks Jerusalem in Luke 19, uh, we find these words. When the city came into view, and you can see how that would be, Jesus begins to weep over the city. And he says, if you had only recognized this day and everything that was good for you, but now it's too late. In the days ahead, your enemies are going to bring up their heavy artillery. They're going to surround you, pressing in from every side. They'll smash you and your babies on the pavement. Not one stone will be left intact. All this because you did not recognize and welcome God's personal visit. Jesus, being God himself, looks over the city and he weeps because if you um, look into history, you'll see that Rome, that's exactly what happened. In 70 A.D., 30-plus um, years after Jesus' death, Rome comes and they burn Jerusalem to the ground. It, it, it boils so hot with fire that the, the rocks actually explode and, and you can see it from 100 miles away. There is not a stone left in Jerusalem at 70 AD. They burn the temple to the ground. One of the greatest uh, architectural feats in all of history, gone, demolished. N nothing left but the very... Uh, bedrock um, that it sat on and jesus looks at this and 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 it's it is a teaching that is just as relevant today as it was then and that is the jews they wanted power they wanted to overthrow rome they wanted to be the rulers they wanted to be the ones that made the decisions and jesus said this is this hate against hate and and this war and this faction it's not going to work listen to me listen to me Love is the only thing that can outlast hate. This is not going to work. And if you continue to try to outmuscle one another, it will destroy you all. And it did. And he weeps. 
over Jerusalem. And he weeps. To get our bearings, uh, Adam Hamilton of our flagship church up in Kansas City, Church of the Resurrection, he took this trip uh, about four years before we did, and um, he had a big video crew with you, with him, and I wanted you to see um, sort of the layout of the city as we go into this last week of Jesus' life. He explains it this way. And the map that you're going to see is a map of, of the city of Jerusalem from the time of Jesus. Let me just uh, remind you, the entire city had a population of about 40,000, we think, in the time of Jesus. And, uh, and this uh, here is the Mount of Olives. So uh, there's a valley that passes between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount that's called the Kidron Valley. Everything that Jesus does in the last week of his life takes place here. So he spends the night out here on the backside of the Mount of Olives in a town called Bethany. He comes to the top of the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, right here, and he, and he rides his donkey down the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount. He teaches here in the temple, in the temple courts and perhaps on the teaching steps, steps over here every day that week. When he goes to pray the last uh, night of his life, he prays here at the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. He is taken uh, across here and up to the house of Caiaphas, where he's tried and found guilty by the Sanhedrin and sentenced to death. Then early the next morning, he's taken through town to the fortress Antonia, where he is sentenced uh, by Pontius Pilate to die. From here, he's taken outside the city walls to the place where he is crucified. This is the Mount of Olives that you see here, and I just want you to have a glimpse of what, uh, what that looked like. This is taken from the temple, or the temple mount. This is the top of the Mount of Olives over here where Jesus begins his journey. He travels this way, and he comes past what today is a chapel where we remember that Jesus uh, wept overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Then he comes down this road here, and he ends up here. And this is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is uh, praying when he's arrested. This is the Church of His Agony, which is adjacent to it. I'll take you inside in a little bit. Then he comes across the Kidron Valley, and this is the Kidron Valley through here. And then he comes up the Temple Mount, which is this area here. The temple is behind me in this photograph. So that kind of gives you a sense of, one, just the terrain, and two, sort of where Jesus would be moving through in the last days of his life. So Mark 11 um, puts it this way. Then they arrived at Jerusalem. Immediately on entering the temple, Jesus started throwing out everyone who had set up shop there, buying and selling. He kicked over the tables of the bankers and the stalls of the pigeon merchants, and he didn't let anyone even carry a basket through the temple. And he taught them, quoting this text. My house was designated a house of prayer for the nations. You've turned it into a hangout for thieves. The high priests and religion scholars heard what was going on and they plotted how they might get rid of him. They panicked for the entire crowd was carried away by his teaching. Now, why was this such a big deal? Why was Jesus so upset? You don't normally see Jesus being angry in most of his, of his ministry. But here he is enraged. He is absolutely outraged. And what was happening was they were just a few days from the Passover. And you would be reminded, as Adam was saying, that it was about 40,000 people when it wasn't Passover. But when Passover came, it would swell to about 200,000 people. And every family would have to sacrifice something at the temple. And you'd have to make a temple offering. The problem was that in order to make a temple offering, you had to have a temple shekel. It was a certain kind of money. Regular shekels wouldn't do. And the exchange rate was not good. Let's just say that. So Jesus enters the temple, and he sees people trying to be made right with God, trying to do the right thing, trying to be in right relationship with God and one another. And there were religious people standing in the way saying, no, 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 you can't use that kind of a shekel. I need my kind of shekel. And by the way, my kind of shekel will cost you two of your kind of shekels. Extortion. 
And then they would come with their pigeons or their goats. And if they had traveled for maybe, you know, 90, 100 miles, by the time they got there, their pigeon had to be a certified temple pigeon. Right? Not just any pigeon, not just any goat. And so they would sell you a certified temple pigeon because if you brought your pigeon, the, the priest could say, no, that's not, that's not a, you know, a temple certified pigeon. And Jesus gets angry because he has the very people who are supposed to be connecting people to God, keeping people from God. Have you ever found yourself doing that? Somebody wanted to come to church with you or learn about the Bible, but you know maybe they don't look right or dress right or maybe they don't act the same way. Maybe they still have a few bad words in their language as if we don't. Religion can never get in the way of connecting people with God. That's what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to keep people out. And so the exchange rate on these shekels, it was high, it was unjust, it was criminal, it was outrageous, and Jesus threw over their tables. Now you would remember that Caiaphas was the high priest, and there was a lot of money to be made. If you get to change one dollar for two, that's a deal. And everybody got to skim a little bit off the top. And so uh, by the time it got to the highest religious authorities and Passover was on its way with five times the normal people, you better get rid of this Jesus who says you can connect to God one-on-one straight up through uh, Jesus' teaching and not have to give your temple sacrifice in that way. So the story continues in chapter 11. He says, include... This is the teaching that Jesus was saying out in the temple courts. He says, include everything as you embrace this God life, and you'll get God's everything. And when you assume the posture of prayer, remember that it's not all asking. If you have anything against someone, forgive, and only then will your heavenly Father be inclined to also wipe your slate clean of sins. And so you have this teaching over and against this massive temple. You can see how massive it is. Michelle Winters and Chantel are there, uh, tiny little people. Uh, and then you go out. You can see the temple courts would be um, out where they were standing. The, the, the Holy of Holies would be about where that is. Uh, but outside of that, there's, there's a big, huge uh, area that just lays out and out and out and out. It would take up nearly 25% of the entire city in Jesus' day. Uh, just incredible. And there were people from all uh, different uh, faiths and backgrounds that come today. Uh, you had very orthodox folks that would wrap their arms and, and hold little scrolls on their heads. And then uh, Steve Winters, who went with us, I mean, he could just pray in his ball cap as long as your head was covered. I didn't have a ball cap, so I had to get me a little yarmulke. And uh, so there I am with my buddy TJ. And this is just to prove to you, I am an O-State grad, that all things are possible through Christ who strengthens us. <laughs> it's possible, right? All different sorts of people can pray at the, at the Western Wall. Okay. This was a new teaching that Jesus said. He was making new ways for new relationships and new people. In Mark 14, um, the scripture says this. The disciples left and came to the city, and they found everything just as he had told them, and he prepared the Passover meal. So now they're in Jerusalem. They're in the upper room. It would hold maybe 100 people. It might, might be as big as this section alone. It's a tiny little place. And in the course of their meal, having taken and blessed the bread, Jesus broke it and gave it to them and he said take this is my body and he takes the chalice and he gave it to them and he thanked God and they all drank from it and he said this is my blood God's new covenant poured out for many people I'll not be drinking wine again until the new day when I drink it in the kingdom of God and they sang a hymn and then they went directly back out to the Mount of Olives so they come in the city you see this back and forth this up and down they go back out to the Mount of Olives and then they go down to the garden and in Mark 14, 35 and 36, 
Jesus goes to pray. He goes a little ahead and he falls to the ground and he prays for a way out. And he says, Papa, Father, you can, can't you? Get me out of this. He doesn't want to go to the cross. Take this cup away from me, but please, not what I want. What do you want? And you'll notice in this exchange that Jesus is modeling the very thing that he asks and teaches his disciples, which is don't do all the asking, listen. And he models this perfectly before the Father. Father, what do you want? And today you can go to uh, really a, a spot, it might be the exact spot, and you can see trees that would have been alive that Jesus may have prayed under himself. Uh, they're old and craggy and uh, they look all gnarly. Uh, this tree is an olive tree. There's about eight of them uh, that are dated back to the time of Christ, more than 2,000 years old. Now, they've been young trees, not as big as they are now, of course. Um, and there would have been much more of them. Rome uh, mowed down most of them when they burned the city in 70 AD. It's a beautiful garden. You can go there just as Adam showed you on the map. It's the, at the lower part of the Mount of Olives. This will be the Garden of Gethsemane. There's an Eastern Orthodox church. Um, and, and this is what I wanted you to see. If, if you look there um, all the way up to the, the top, you'll see uh, the Dome of the Rock, which was where the temple would have been all the way up here. And here's the eastern gate where Jesus would have gone into Jerusalem. And he knows that this is where God is calling him. This is where his father's asking him to go. And so he's on his knees and he's praying on the ground. He is so anxious that he is bleeding. He is sweating drops of blood. And he's looking up at where God's calling him to go. And he doesn't want to go. But he does. That's probably a 15 to 20 story climb. And this is where God is calling his son to go to be crucified, tried unjustly, and killed at the hands of people who were liars. They would make up anything they could to get him lynched. Anything they could do. So, but Jesus says, not what I want. What do you want? There is a church there called the Church of Agony or the Church of All Nations. And inside, uh, it depicts in beautiful mosaics, Jesus at the rock being ministered to by the angels and praying that very prayer. Of course, not long after that, Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss of all things. Imagine one of your best friends, the one, the treasurer of the group, the one you trusted the most, the one you trusted with the money, comes and gives you a kiss to end your life. And to this day, uh, it's still a practicing cathedral, and so while we were there, uh, services were ongoing, and, which is sort of odd, um, but beautiful in, in its own way. You can go right there to the Church of Agony where Jesus prayed. And the rock is right there in the middle uh, where they believe Jesus actually would have uh, been praying the night, last night, um, before he went to the cross. They take him then and they march him, not just up through the eastern gate, but they go all the way around to Caiaphas' house. Now, you would note that the Sanhedrin was not supposed to meet at night. They were not supposed to meet if they didn't have everyone present. And so, rather than ever coming at Jesus in the light of day, they wait until it's dark and they go to the very edge of town. Mark 14 accounts it this way. They led Jesus to the chief priest where the high priest, religious leaders, and scholars had gathered together and Peter followed at a safe distance until they got to the chief priest's courtyard where he mingled with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. You can actually go to the church of St. Peter Galicantu and the doors look like this. It, it recounts uh, Peter's denial. You see the little rooster in the background. 
also, interestingly, that when um, they put people in prison in Jesus' day, they often would simply lower them in a hole. Here's a depiction of what they think happened to Jesus. Um, they simply would tie ropes around them and lower them in a hole that wasn't much bigger, maybe give you six inches around you, and they would simply lower you in the hole and then cut the rope, and you're going to be in there until they decided to get you out. There was no uh, sort of bars or anything like that. You simply were dropped down into a hole, and there's a place where you can see where they, um, they believe that Jesus would have been held prisoner there at Caiaphas' house. So the scripture describes it this way. Jesus was silent and he said nothing and the chief priest tried again and this time he asked Jesus directly, are you the Messiah? Now you remember that Jesus just a few days earlier had ridden in on a donkey. It's a valid question. Are you the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, yes, I am. And you'll see it yourself. You'll also note that I am is the name that God uses for himself in Exodus 3 when Moses says, what's your name? God says, I am. Jesus says, I am. And you'll see it yourself. The Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Mighty One, arriving on the clouds of heaven. The chief priest lost his temper, ripped his clothes, and he yelled, Did you hear that? After that, we don't need any witnesses. You see, because he knew well himself that they did need witnesses. They were unjust. This was a sham trial. You heard the blasphemy. Are you going to stand for it? They condemned him, one and all, in the middle of the night, on the edge of town, without everyone present. The sentence, death. And some of them started spitting at him. They blindfolded his eyes. Then they hit him, saying, who hit you? Prophesy. And the guards punching and slapped him, took him away. Now, from Caiaphas' house, back up through the town, it was not an easy way. Uh, it's not like a city today. Uh, this would have been uh, the road that Jesus would have left um, out of Caiaphas' house. It's very difficult, even if you're in pretty good shape. Um, it's rocky and steep. Um, once Jesus um, takes the cross, it's known as the Via Dolorosa, uh, the way of suffering. And you can walk those streets as well. And again, that wouldn't be an easy trek as, either. It, they're skinny and steep. And so it wasn't simply that Jesus was going from here to there. Jesus was climbing uh, very hard terrain um, with a cross. No wonder Simon of Cyrene had to help him at points. Uh, if you walk there, that makes total sense to you. The other thing that really struck me uh, was how close Pilate would have been to the temple. They were in cahoots, and when you sort of see the layout of it, 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 it will really sort of, uh, it, it just arrested me. In Mark 15, 1, the scripture says this, at dawn's first light, after they tried Jesus on the edge of town at night without a, a legitimate group, at dawn's first light, the high priest with the religious leaders and scholars, they arranged a conference with the entire Jewish council, and after tying Jesus securely, they took him out, right? They would have pulled him up out of that pit, and they took him to Pilate. Now, where's Pilate? Now, I want to show this to you in a model. This is the temple. Uh, the eastern gate um, would be um, towards us. And then if you were to zoom out there, um, what you'll see up to your right, this is the Antonio Fortress. This is where Pilate would have hung out. This was built um, around the same time uh, as the temple. Rome lived here. The temple is right here. You can see it's, it looks attached right? So this is where Jesus is teaching, right? The money changers are going to be right over here. Pilate's going to be right here. And so you can see that nothing was getting past Rome because this is their fortress and this is the temple. It's all together. It's sort of all one thing. They're in cahoots with one another about what happens in and around Israel. This, you see Antonia Fortress that we just saw right here in the temple right here? Caiaphas' house, 
Okay? You see the difference? Try it at night. Nobody around here. This is um, going to be Herod's palace and line of sight for the temple. Temple, Pilate, Caiaphas, all the way over here. So Jesus has to make his way back to the Antonia Fortress. And the scriptures describe it this way. The soldiers took Jesus into the place and called together the entire brigade. They dressed him in purple, put a crown, plated from a thorn bush on his head, and they began their mockery. Bravo, king of the Jews. They banged on his head with a club, spit on him, knelt down in mock worship of him. And after they had their fun, they took off the purple cape and they put his own clothes back on him. And then they marched him out to nail him onto the cross. And the soldiers brought Jesus to Golgotha, meaning Skull Hill. Now, scholars um, debate about whether there's a place that looks a lot like a skull uh, called Gordon's Calvary uh, or the place of the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, both have compelling reasons why you would think that they would be there. Both are outside the city wall, which would have been um, the case. And so we, we visited both. They're both uh, very moving. And they nailed him up at 9 o'clock in the morning, Friday morning, after having him out at Caiaphas' house all night, Thursday night. They march him across. They try him before Pilate. They beat him within an inch of his life, and then they take him outside the city wall along the street to kill him. Three hours later at noon, the sky becomes extremely dark. The darkness lasts three hours, and at three o'clock, Jesus groans out of his depth, crying loudly, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You see, Jesus has suffered in the same way each of us have suffered. There's nothing that we've been through that he can't understand or can't empathize with. He has felt abandoned as well. And at the end of his life, when the Roman captain standing guard in front of him, the centurion he would have had at least 100 men under him, when he sees that Jesus quit breathing and he had done hundreds if not thousands of crucifixions before, he said this, this has to be the Son of God. He had never seen anything like it. He'd never seen someone hang from a cross and bless instead of curse. He had never seen someone hang on a cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He'd never seen anything like that. And he says, this has to be the Son of God. The Son of God. And so you can actually go to that spot uh, where the tradition says he is. And they have beautiful mosaics of uh, Jesus' death. And you can go to the place where they believe that he was anointed for burial. And you can go and you can touch the very rock where they anointed Jesus' uh, body uh, by tradition. And um, people do. They put scarves and candles and it's a, a great and holy place. And so they, they light candles for people that uh, have passed on and in honor of those and they pray for them. Um, and they have um, worship going on all around you um, while you do that. The gospel concludes this way in the close of 15 and chapter 16. This is late in the afternoon, since it was the day of preparation, that is Sabbath Eve. Joseph of Arimathea, a highly respected member of the Jewish council, came. He was one of those who lived expectantly on the lookout for the kingdom of God to see what God was doing. He worked up his courage and he went to Pilate. Imagine how difficult that would be. That he went to Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate questioned whether he could be dead that soon and called for the captain to verify that he was really dead. And he was. Assured by the captain, he gave Joseph the corpse. Having already purchased a linen shroud, Joseph took him down, wrapped him in the shroud, placed him in a tomb that had been cut into the rock and rolled a large stone across the opening. In the same way that Jesus was most uh, assuredly born in a cave, he died in a cave. In the same way, not in great splendor and glory, but in the everydayness of life. 
And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they brought spices so they could embalm him. And very early on Sunday morning, Easter morning, as the sun rose, they went to the tomb and they worried out loud to each other, well, who's going to roll the stone back from the tomb for us? And then they looked up and they saw that it had been rolled back and it was a huge stone and they walked right in, right in. It would have been a tiny little cutout about like that and they would have come in and there was a place where they would um, prepare someone for burial and then to the right was the actual body. And Jesus wasn't there. There was an angel. And he said what angels always say, don't be afraid. Which is good. If you've ever met an angel, that's, that's a good word to you. Don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, the one they nailed to the cross. He's been raised up. He's no longer here. You can see for yourselves that the place is empty. Now, on your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going on ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there exactly as Jesus said. This is great news, friends. You see, death could not hold him. Death could not hold Jesus, the God of love, life among us, the one that brought shalom, made things whole, made things right, made the crooked places straight. And the thing that we're reminded by the great Easter message is that the worst thing is never the last thing. And so if you're having a hard time tonight, if you're in the middle of a struggle, just know that you're not at the end. You're not at the end because Christ makes all things new in his time. And so our action step for tonight, friends, is the last words of Jesus. In Mark 16, 14 to 16, Jesus says this. Still later, as the eleven were eating supper, Jesus appears, and he took them to task, most severely for their stubborn unbelief. Can you imagine how annoying that would be for Jesus? He's raised, and his own followers don't believe it. That would be tough. That would be tough. And so he gets on to them. And he says, guys, come on. And then he says this, and he says this to us too. Go. Go, go into the world, go everywhere and announce the message of God's, what kind of news? Good news, good news, not bad news, not hate news, good news to who? One and all, all. Now friends, I don't know about you, but this week has served as a stark reminder that we've just got some work to do. Until every house and every child knows the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the passion and compassion of God, where the hungry are fed and the sick are cared for, we've got work to do. Because hell reigns when we don't. Incredible hatred takes root. And sprouts up, and nonsense gets taught. Not about love and forgiveness, but crazy things where we start to be afraid of our own neighbors. I mean, how is it that in this day, in this time, in this country, we can still have people who can sit for an hour in a Bible study and then shoot you dead? That boy had no clue about the love and compassion and forgiveness of God. He simply didn't know it. And if you doubt that, you just look at the fruit of their lives. That's what Jesus says. He says, look at my followers' lives. Look at our lives. And so that starts with us. It starts in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own homes and schools and communities. 
So I, I pray that we'll, of course, be praying with Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. I mean, friends, this, this is our family. These are Wesleyan people. These are, these are Methodists at a Bible study. And people wonder, well, why, you know, why is it so important that, that the good news of Jesus spreads through the world? Because it does. It does. And you never know how it's going to come out sideways if, if that love doesn't take root and grow. Because it is a battle of life over death. So we pray for these brothers and sisters in Christ, these Methodist folks in South Carolina, all their families, all their friends, and all those tempted for revenge, all those tempted to hate, all those tempted to push and move as Judas did, to take revenge and take action only to watch Jerusalem burn to the ground. You see, Jesus knows the temptations of rage and revenge and he prays for us as people to be people of peace and of grace and forgiveness and compassion. So invite us to pray with these folks and to pray for ourselves. And to know that any bit, any seed of unforgiveness in your life, root it out now, friends. Don't let it fester. Don't let it grow. Ask the Lord of life to come and take it. Remove it. Make you new. Die to the rage die to the hurt, and be raised to new life in Christ. Will you pray with me for our uh, beautiful friends and brothers and sisters on the East Coast? Almighty God, in your keeping there is shelter from the storm, and in your mercy there is comfort for the sorrows of life. Hear now our prayer for those who mourn and are heavy laden. Give to them strength to bear and do your will. Enable them to see beyond the things of this mortal world the promise of the eternal. Help them to know that your care enfolds all your people, that you are our refuge and strength, and that underneath are your everlasting arms. 